KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. Show about housing, land, and politics. Today in the program, we have a very exciting guest. We're speaking to Andrew Crockett. What's more exciting than the combination of land assessment and politics? That is, we're focusing on the race for the Santa Clara County Assessor's Office. He is the main and only challenger to Larry Stone, a very interesting race, and he knows the office from the inside. He cuts a very eccentric figure if you've ever seen him with his handlebar mustache and 1920s getup. But we're here to talk about the race and also about the nitty-gritty about actually what goes on inside the St. Clair office, a lot of the technical nuts and bolts. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, let's uh, just get on. So, yeah, uh, thank you so much for making it here, Andrew. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, so, I mean, this program, uh, I think assessment uh, is, is, we're no stranger to the concept of assessment. We're excited about the concept of assessment, but even for us, it may be a question. You know, in California, in the land of Prop 13, isn't it the case that, like, the assessor's office, like, has no work to be done? I think a lot of people might be under that impression. So I think just getting out of the gate, uh, why don't you tell everybody, you know, what the Santa Clara County's assessor's office, what it is, and who you are, and you know, why any of this race matters. Okay. I'm Andrew Crockett. I'm a CPA and financial analyst, also a certified appraiser, who's running for Santa Clara County assessor. What the assessor does is administrate assessments under the property tax code of the state of California. Some states, the tax collector and assessor are combined into one office in California since 1850. They were made distinct because there were some mid-19th century scandals about self-dealing when you had these offices combined. So California, for good reason, has had these offices different. But this is why you see a lot of folks with confusion around it saying, oh, it's the tax assessor's office. It's like, No, not in California. In California, we do assessments according to the rules outlined in the California Constitution as to how to ascribe a value to each property in the state, in each respective county, which is the basis for the property taxes that are then levied on those properties. So it's it's the assessment is sent to the tax collectors and they determine the bill based on on rules that apply. And the main rule that applies, as you highlighted, was Proposition 13. It sets the property tax rate at 1% of the assessed value of any property in the state. And so what is that assessment? How is Prop 13 relevant in this equation? Well, there's there's the baseline of what Prop 13 is, which is your purchase price of the property is set as your base value. And then every year after that, that base value assessment goes up by 2% or the rate of inflation each year. And if you have a major recession, there's another proposition that modified Prop 13 called Prop 8, which reduces the assessment temporarily if the value of the property is lower than the assessed value. Uh, So then when the recovery happens, it then gets restored to that Prop 13 value and it continues forward from there. There are some other more esoteric laws on the books, whether it's the Williamson Act, which deals with agricultural and open space property, 
for the Mills Act, which deals with historical properties, and these provide some property assessment relief. But this is this incredible amount of administrative work is what the assessor does. And in order to do it well, they have to keep track of all of the data on every single property in the county so that as these properties are sold and exchanged, that data can be used to inform appraisals to make sure that there's not any manipulation of the market going on. Like if I sell my house to you for a dollar, it doesn't mean your assessed value will be a dollar on your ha- on the house once you receive it. It will be the fair market value of, of the property the date you receive it. And that's the basis of the assessment. So that's that's what property Prop 13 did to California in terms of its assessment system and why there's so much work to be done at the assessor's office and why so much valuable data is produced in the process of administering this system. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good overview. I think just to jump into it, there is a race going on. You are you have recently gone from basically the third candidate in the race, you know, putting the incumbent at first to uh, suddenly being in in uh, the main, uh, you know, uh, competitor for the seat. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's I mean, I'll say on this program, we're no strangers to criticizing Larry Stone. He's he's one of the villains as far as this program goes. I think we we've brought him up in the past in re- reference to Prop 15 uh, Larry Stone, uh, for for you could say, insofar as he didn't want the assessor's office to do the job of assessing, uh, came out in opposition to Prop 15, which would have reassessed commercial rates. Uh, but in general, yeah, just to, just talk a little about this race. You know, Larry Stone, yourself, uh, the kind of you know uh, the second uh, place competitor who dropped out. Uh, but yeah, what, what's going on with this race? So, part of why I'm running, I, I, I've mentioned the. Three main buzzwords for the campaign are housing, competence, and honesty. And honesty plugs into this idea of civic duty. And it's a strange thing in the 21st century to talk about duty, but when we have a democracy, a government by the people, it is up to the people to govern that democracy. And one of the things that has greatly concerned me that I've seen throughout my life is that we have this democracy where it de facto gives us the wealthiest members of our community to choose from as elected officials without anyone who's more representative of the struggles of the people actually living in any given district. Like myself being a millennial, it's just it's a savage housing market out there. And we all know so many of us being educated, having gone to college, we know the opportunity cost we lose every single year when we remain a renter. And yet we fight so very, very hard to get that down payment necessary to get a house only to see that down payment necessary to buy it go higher and higher. And this type of struggle when one is safely independently wealthy, uh, such as the incumbent or the other person who dropped out, who is a venture capitalist, who is worth four times what the incumbent was, it doesn't really give you a choice in terms of who's going to represent you. Is it going to be rich dude number one or rich dude number two? Or is it going to be somebody like myself who 
had to figure out how to make ends meet during the Great Recession and understands those struggles. This is something I care about. And that's why I was running despite this. And then suddenly, venture capitalist person does some bad things that come to light and he drops out. So now I'm in a position to take back the assessor's office for all the 2 million people that call Santa Clara County home. I mean, just offhand, it's kind of it's kind of amusing. Uh, this is uh, the Gary Kremen, most famous for being the owner of the domain sex.com, somehow got uh, wrapped up in Tadri's stuff. But uh, no, but I, I think a key question is, you know, on this program, I think we'd say, okay, housing and taxes. You know, it's like in a perfect world of politics where things can move, we can actually bring down the cost of housing through taxes. But unfortunately, in California, you know, our hands are largely tied. You know, it's not like the assessors can just go rogue and start like disobeying the restrictions of Prop 13 to drive land prices down. Uh, but I guess the question is, you know, well, what is the blueprint of like how can housing, you know, I guess evolve? I mean, I'll say is if nothing else, the fact that the assessor's office came out against Prop 15, that's you know a big mark against it. I think if the assessor has nothing else but the bully pulpit. That's not nothing. But in general, like, well, well, what, what do you see as the role of the assessor as far as the future of making housing you know, more affordable? So there's two points you highlighted there. The first one is Prop 15 and Larry Stone, the incumbent's contribution to its defeat. And I'm the first to say as a CPA that there were certain things that were suboptimal about Prop 15. I figured that when you net them all out, it would be an overwhelming positive, even though there were certain things like not exempting enough value for nonprofit organizations, because there's a lot of community centers that would have been shut down here in Silicon Valley because property prices are insane here for all of these reasons we recognize. So that, that was a concern of mine, but the overall community value it would have provided far outweighed the detriments. And of course, I'd rather have that set of problems than the perpetually underfunded schools that are having all of the youth grow up without the tools necessary to succeed in the very tech industry that is thriving here in the place they grew up in, the place they call home. The fact we're not empowering these people who live here and love this place to take on those jobs is just an absurdity and it's a lack of resources. And Prop 15 was going to help resolve that in one of many possible ways to approach this problem. Larry Stone came out swinging for the bleachers against it because it would be too much work for his office. And I can tell you that that is not true at all. Having, having both a certification as a CPA, a certified public accountant, and a certified appraiser, these are very congruent fields. Most of the type of property assessments that would go on for commercial properties are about time value of money calculations, something that any reasonably advanced accountant can do with the appropriate training. We have plenty of accountants who could be ported in to fill that gap, but the incumbent wanted Prop 15 to lose. He may have closely held reasons that he did not want it to win, that he would not make public because he might see those as politically disadvantageous. But 
he came up with this reason that it would be too much work, which is just such an absurdity for a public servant to say, I got elected to this position. You expect me to do things? This is, I'm going to go on a very brief tangent here. Under the California Taxation and Revenue Code, it describes how how assessors are ex- are legally exempt from any punitive action for the data in their database that they use for the basis of appraisals being garbage, absolute garbage. It mm. can be garbage in, garbage out all day long, and no liability is accrued in doing so. And this is under our laws in California. And the incumbent goes, that's what the gold standard is. I'm going to aim for the floor because that's what's expected to me. Like a, like a student going to school going, wow, you mean a C minus is passing? Dang, I should shoot for that all day long. And I'm sitting here going, no, that's setting the floor. You want to shoot for what would serve your community. And this data is, can be precision in so many ways that allows us to craft the type of legislative policies that are informed by exactly what the circumstances of the market are right now, rather than doing a blanket policy, trying to ameliorate some things while it might not be a perfect fit for others. This type of precision guided policy is what public service is all about. And it gets me super excited. I can, so, I can, yeah, I mean, as far as the kind of the technical, I, I can understand the honesty of I'm lazy. And I think Larry Stone even went beyond that. He said, it's not only difficult, it's impossible to administer Prop 15. I don't know if you if you've heard the technical parts of that, or if that's just a soundbite with no real backing or argument. But it's, uh, that's what he said. It's a bit weird. It is empty rhetoric. And when somebody is financially literate, you can see that it's empty rhetoric. Of course, it's like, what do we do in the postmodern era? We tell stories to warp reality so that people can't actually be related to the facts. And then you end up getting policy either passed or stopped in the case of Prop 15 by warping people's perceptions of reality. This is why honesty in public service is so imperative because if you don't prove to the people that what you're doing is based in reality and hold yourself to it. It's part of the reason why one of my main promises as a candidate is to have yearly audited financial statements, as well as having the annual, the annual review issued by the office being reviewed independently to make sure that all the numbers are true and accurate is because you have to trust, but verify. This is the standard that all CPAs are taught for auditing. And this is the type of integrity we need in public service. And when you have that integrity, people trust you and you're able to build things together. Right now, the rhetoric that the incumbent uses, Stone, is all about tearing things down, trying to keep them as base level as it is. And we just squander opportunity after opportunity with that type of leadership or lack thereof, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I mean, you, the cynical take here is one I generally believe, which is to say in the same way, no one gets fired for picking IBM. If you pick an assessor who kind of knows to 
advantage the property owners who are this base of who elects them, that's a very kind of robust cycle. You you kind of you you give a, a sweetheart deal to the block of property owners, and then over the years, like it just kind of you know it's like don't don't mess with a with a good thing. Uh, and I mean, you Larry Stone has put out uh, videos saying that he is on the homeowner's side. You know, he what like it's just a it's it just it's it's machine politics in a way that like. I can't understand. I don't have to admire it. I understand it, but I think that ultimately it's uh, it's self-defeating and we we kind of need to look at how do you have an assessor's office that is not just going to listen to property owners. And we're and I'll just be clear it's it's a hard it's a hard uh, kind of uh you know uh, disadvantage to overcome insofar as not only are homeowners in you know most of the areas a majority uh of 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 residents, but as far as a wide majority of voters, you know, not only because, you know, people who are rooted for longer are known to vote more, uh, but also, I mean, I think uh, many people who are renters in this area are not even citizens. They're affected by tax policy, but they can't vote. And that's, that's a really hard thing to come to grips against. But just in general, like, how do you think we overcome this cycle of the assessor just basically... Uh, being a cynical, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of tool of, of 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 property owners instead of you know someone who is, I guess, ideally speaking to some sort of you know higher uh, authority coalition that will not only get myself elected, but will get other folks like myself elected up and down the state is going to be the people who are renters who don't want to be. And the people who are homeowners who actually understand the civic obligation they have to making sure that other people have the same opportunities they had. Just like John Locke said, the obligation of having a thriving economy is that you leave as much and as good to the next generation. And right now, that is not the case. If you take a look at the uh, 2020-2021 annual report from the assessor's office, it has this really just gut-churning quote from Larry Stone in it, where it quotes that we've had our homeownership rate decrease by nearly 12% in the last decade. And he says, due to the preference of millennials to rent rather than own, there has been a net decrease in the number of homeowners in Santa Clara County over the last decade. Ah, you understand how much that burns. <laughs> I understand how much that burns. And there are so many other folks who have been burned by this policy of inaction, making sure that the ladder of equity building will be present for people who come after me. And this opres-moi-le-deluge attitude that the incumbent has has to go. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, like, reduce everything. I don't want to reduce everything to generational warfare. But it, like, Santa Clara, Val uh, Santa Clara County is definitely a place in which there is, you could describe it as kind of a retirement community of people who've built up their kind of, you know, this this equity over decades and decades and feel no obligation to pay it back in. And, you know, Larry Stone is going to, if he were to be reelected, re he'd be 87 years old in the next term. Like it's, I don't know, as far as just like 
the last gasp of this generation sucking everything dry. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's, it's. We're at the threshold of a renter's revolt. Yeah. In Silicon Valley, as well as elsewhere throughout the state, due to these types of kicking the can down the roads policies. And frankly, revolutions frequently are messy and frequently are preyed upon by opportunists who want to get some form of self-benefit out of people's pent-up anger. And I really see that in the cards, and I want to make sure that we nip it in the bud. Because if we can keep our senses and get control of the assessor's offices up and down the state, as well as other legislative bodies, whether city council, uh, board of supervisors, or in Sacramento, these people will craft the policies that will allow us to release the pressure before it goes catastrophic. Because when people just have had enough, the policies that come out of that type of pent-up frustration are never well thought through. It, when people talk about Prop 13 as a taxpayer's revolt, part of the reason why we have the problems we're dealing with today was because a taxpayer's revolt was taken advantage of by Howard Jarvis and friends. And they turned it into this legislation that while satisfying the taxpayer revolting populace, it also set the foundations for this incredible, just ridiculous differential in tax obligation between old corporations and any new companies. It's part of the reason why Facebook was the biggest corporate backer of Prop 15 was because they felt it fundamentally unfair that they had a tax bill 12 times the size of IBM next door, simply because they were heritage tech versus new tech. Yeah, you, you start to see, you know, kind of people who are definitely powerful, but have grievances. And that's, you know, that's how you build a coalition politically. But it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if you've, you've read this in uh, Howard Jarvis's book he wrote back in the 70s, uh, I'm Mad as Hell. He like the technical shortcomings of the assessment offices is like one of his main stump speeches. He, he, he said he's like, they don't reassess enough and fairly on the same block. You'll see people who, because three or four years passes, have wildly different assessments. And like this was a rallying cry to say we need to, you know, throw the bums out and put Prop 13 in place. I mean, the, the great irony, of course, is that the assessments now are have orders of magnitude of, of deviation in a way that is completely like you just I think as far as horizontal and you know equity goes just absolutely impossible to justify but you know certainly it's interesting that you know he, he was pointing out the shortcomings of the technical proficiency and I mean as far as it goes I mean I think technology is evolving in all sorts of ways shouldn't our assessment offices have at least the capacity to aim for doing what you know the zillows of the world are doing i i think they have absolutely the capacity but you go to i don't know if i've how much i've dug in but uh san, san mateo county assessor website definitely in the past to try to just find information and it's like a 1995 era website and impossible to you know to get information in any quantity because it is a fiddly interface of like going click by click you have to manually uh, you know, uh, go through CGI pages to, to look, and just it's a disaster. Uh, but, uh, 
I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just as far as the, like to dig into the technical side of things, uh, just in general, we, we mentioned before, there's, there's a disparity between sale price and market value, but largely they kind of map onto each other. I guess the question is, how often, how often are they one-to-one? How often are there outliers? And what is the role of the office in your experience in kind of determining when something, you know, needs to be overwritten? There was a point you were making and then another point. <laughs> yeah, just, just jump into any, any part of it. I feel like I... I'm actually, going to I, address I, both of them. Yeah. Uh, the first one was about how wide the gap is between people who purchase property now versus the folks who have had Prop 13 since the beginning, like Larry Stone, the incumbent here in Santa Clara County. You can find on the Santa Clara County Tax Collector's website, which is... Uh, very up-to-date and modern, you can find the property tax bills, which are part of public record for every single one of the 484,000 properties here in Santa Clara County. So I pulled up Larry Stones and his property, which is worth about $3.1 million on the market, is currently assessed at $279,543, just under 280K. So his property tax bill, including additional assessments, comes to $3,704.40. But if a person like myself were to purchase his home at $3.1 million, that would mean that my property tax bill for the exact same house that Larry Stone currently lives in would be roughly $32,000 a year. Yeah. And this is, this is, why we're at this crisis point right now and why it's so imperative we act. We actually proactively get ahead of this and manage to determine what courses of action based on the data and the actual facts on the ground are so that we can you know, ease ourselves into what comes next that would be fundamentally more fair and equitable. And speaking of fair and equitable, you brought up the fair market value versus sales price di- difference. When I worked at the assessor's office, I had an example of this come before my desk as an appraiser. And it was this property that sold for $284,000. It was like, wow, at the time, even a very low-end house would be about half a million dollars. This was back during the Great Recession. So I went, what's going on here? And I inquired with the clerk recorder's office to get additional data. And what had happened was a person had died and the house was as payment of debts that had been incurred by the person who had died and so those debts were expunged and then the remaining balance was paid by the new owner of the property. So this, of course, being a debt cleaning act off record, it wasn't recorded as part of the cash paid for the property. And then my job was to go and find comparable houses and then issue a notice to that to that new property owner saying, okay, we have determined that the assessed value of this property was, I can't remember exactly, but it was, I think 550K, somewhere around there. And I said this, so that notice goes out, they receive it. 
and they have an opportunity to challenge it through the appeals system and say, oh, I have other information that indicates that this house was in far worse shape than you might have estimated. Therefore, it deserves a $500,000 assessment. And that opportunity for adversarial discussion and resolution is available to every single person after they purchase a property here in the state of California. So that type of interaction, it's uncommon because most properties tend to be fair market, open market transactions. But when you see something that just is definitely an order of magnitude off of the average, you investigate it and you normally find some interesting story like that. That's interesting. It puts, puts the appraiser in the role of the detective to find out what's going on here. I, how much, like, in that scenario, is that the appraiser's role to make a decision? Or is that actually, like, if, if, if like, let's say you have someone who is, you know, kind of like, oh, I don't, sure, rubber stamp everything, you know, ship it, ship it, ship it. Like, uh, but I guess, like, if you see two things, like, it's like, oh, this seems to check out, this is within the right order of magnitude. Uh, or is this the, or does it come down from above? Like you must investigate this. Like, well, what, like, what is this whole role? How much discretion is at play here between what is investigated, what is, and what sets off the alarm? This is relevant to one of my main platform points of competence, because one of the things that really sets me and the incumbent Larry Stone apart is our management philosophy. He comes straight out of the mid-20th century school of the executive is the head and every other part of the organization is the body, the hands, the feet. They do what the head wants them to. And if they do not, they should be thrown off. And I come from the more modern empirical-based system of management where they tested and they found that, wow, the manager's role is a facilitator. Larry Stone loves to say, I have more experience than anyone else here in Santa Clara County at being an assessor. And it's like, yeah, you're the only one alive right now. So 28 years in that office. And I go, dude, just honestly, the real value, the real competence of that office is the 2000 plus years of experience in all of those employees, because they're the ones that at the very front line in the trenches of doing what the assessor's office needs to do, see these differentials and their duty is to investigate them. And of course, they have managers they report to who make sure that if the frontline appraiser missed it, they can send it back to the appraiser and say, you need to investigate this more. You need to uh, choose some different comparable sales. Their job is to do quality control. And this system is currently tamped down by the assessment, the management strategy of the current assessor, because it's based on this distrust all the way down. Ultimately, it's Larry Stone's duty to exercise his wisdom to determine what should or should not be assessed one way or another. Whereas myself, I go, no, these folks know so much in aggregate. My job is to facilitate their brilliance so that as few grains pass through the cracks as possible. 
you really have an opportunity for excellence in this office if you hold the experience of the appraisers up rather than trying to be the weight at the top of the pyramid pressing them down. So this is, I believe this has answered your question pretty comprehensively. Is, is there more that you want to plumb here? Yeah, I, I'm just curious the details. I mean, so how big is the office? How many people are uh, work there? During this pandemic, there were a lot of early retirements for good reason. <laughs> people yeah. do not like working there. In fact, <laughs> several of the volunteers on my campaign are former employees that want to make sure that this office can shine like they know it's capable of. Yeah. And so at its lowest nadir, it's been about 220 uh, normally, it's operating around 250 employees, and frankly, that number could drop after we do the substantial infrastructure investments into the database that's from the 1970s. It's COBOL coded. In fact, I was out canvassing in South San Jose, and one of the fellows who opened the door to one of the houses I was canvassing was a COBOL coder. For Santa Clara County, who is a retiree, he had worked there for 25 years, and he was involved in the Y2K compliance. Oh hell yeah! For the COBOL coded uh, assessor's office database, and I just went, dude, can I call you once I'm assessor? We're gonna need you. It's a <laughs> weird so- part of the town. I mean, it, like people don't really like the, the our entire banking system is is built upon like 1960s tech and like i'll say it's, it's you know it, it's robust i mean the fact it stayed up for you know 50 years it definitely it's not brittle but it certainly doesn't give you the flexibility to kind of a- adapt and evolve as you need uh of the, of the 200 to 250 like how many of those are are appraisers how many do other roles in the office i believe it's about 15 to 10 to 15 percent are administrative and what what I remember very keenly about working there was the number of clerks we had whose job was purely to do key punching because we didn't have any ability to upload spreadsheets or scans or anything of that nature directly into the database. It all had to be hand punched into the data, into the database one screen at a time. In fact, when I was first hired there in 2011 as an office specialist one, my two jobs were I worked the mailroom and I did manual key punching. I did, like I always thought even the banking system, I always thought there's like some layer. I, I, I really did not realize anyone ever did key punching in the 21st century. That is that is that is really uh, crazy. That's 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 funny. This is why I say that we do this upgrade there will be a a decrease in the number of employees needed to administer the office. But that said, part of the reason why this upgrade hasn't gone through is because of fear by the employees of redundancy and they, they don't want to lose their jobs. That's part of the reason why I speak quite frequently in my videos and social media about the fact that I'm union and labor throughout my entire adult working career because I know how anxious people are. They, they want to keep their jobs. They're, they're worried about, you know, two paychecks from now, if that's not there, they, they're in dire straits. So I want to come in there and 
make sure that no matter what, when we get these upgrades through, I will find a way to either retrain, upgrade, promote from within these people who know the assessor's office very well, just due to proximity. They deserve to have opportunities for advancement within the organization and retention promises because they're valuable. It's like, you know, just like Fauci said, I can't teach you to care about other people. It's like, this is one of the things that I bring to the office is there's no one in that office that I would not want to make sure was protected. And that's something that is totally not present there currently where folks are seen as disposable. In fact, some of the folks I've talked with that used to work there, they, they describe how the management has developed a way of weaponizing the, the merit-based system rules for Santa Clara County for retaining employment. They've learned how to weaponize it in order to eliminate somebody from employment, in particular, if they become a very effective union steward that almost always comes along with some disciplinary action that gets you laid off mm. shortly thereafter because they, they will allow stewards to exist for a time, but if they're too, too successful for too long, normally they're able to jimmy the rules and get them bounced. And that creates a climate of fear for the people. Yeah, I was, just, I was about to say, you know, this, this, this kind of... This kind of fear, this kind of scarcity, this kind of, you know, this mindset in general does, it entrenches, you know, a small C conservatism that people don't really care about anything getting better. They just care about at least making sure the crumbs they get aren't taken away. And you can talk about people in the office, you know, as effectively the necessary work of, you know, of making it, you know, you know, basically modern. You know, I, I think that people don't want to rock the boat, but honestly, we need to make sure we we change, but we also take care of people. And the same thing goes, you can talk about like Prop 13 protected homeowners and all that. You know, we, you could describe the entire thing as this pyramid scheme over decades and decades and decades. And like right now it's untenable. I think you could say the new generation buying in. I mean, the Howard Jarvis website will say, oh, you realize you benefit too. When you pay 32000 a year in property taxes, at least you know it's not going up. It's like, well, 32000 a year is a really high floor. I don't know how many more tiers of people buying into the system you need, but how do you how do you wind down a pyramid scheme? I think it's going to, at the very least, politically, you're going to have to take care of people. You're going to have to wind it down softly. You're going to say doing this the e- like there's an easy way and a hard way. The hard way is this whole thing collapses. <laughs> the easy way is like you know we're going to come out with uh, at least above water. Yes, systems look for equilibrium, yeah. and the current system is out of balance, and it shows up with the simmering rage and resentment. It's like you, you see, you know, the tropes and the memes showing this okay boomer attitude from Gen Z. Just they're expressing in a very visceral way the frustration of coming up in a system that they realize is just so overwhelmingly stacked against them that, you know, name calling is about all they can do so they go there and frankly it's like it's not a positive coping mechanism but 
they're desperate and there is a feeling of desperation that is only increasing if we don't do what you were just describing, which was diagnosing exactly where we are, taking all of these different financial metrics into account and doing a comprehensive strategy to ease us down off of this, as you described it, pyramid scheme, so that it doesn't inflict too much duress on those who are currently, you, you could describe as benefiting from the pyramid scheme, but they need to not be shocked to a point where they would end up, you know, revolting in other ways. We don't want to set the scene for another counter-revolution. We want to wind this down where we use discussion and fact data-driven insight to find out what solutions come next. Like I just secured the endorsement of a local leader in the public banking discussion. Public banking has been legalized in the state of California. And right now municipalities are, are slowly wading into that water to see how they can use this for public benefit. And one of the things that I see is very obvious is being able to do very flexible loans for people on the margins of society. If you can give somebody a 60 year loan, they may be able to afford housing in even a very stilted environment. Yes, 60 years is longer than a lot of people live, but right now, if there's no other option, that would be a path forward. Likewise, ways of doing no money down mortgages for people who qualify so that instead of just being on the rental trap of paying what would be a mortgage every month in rent, you would be able to segue that money you spent currently in rent directly into paying it for a mortgage. This type of flexibility could be provided by a public bank whose aim is bridging this gap between folks who want to have homes and have the money to own homes and currently are locked out because of the way the system is currently set up. Yeah, I mean, the, the financial, uh, you know, I guess institutions are very conservative. They don't like to lend anything that's unusual. And, you know, while I can be skeptical of kind of standard mortgages insofar as expanding credit to have people buy up a positional good such as real estate and land is, I think, always kind of doomed in the long term because as you expand credit, it just gets bid up further and further. But I think there are like really, you know, I, I think as far as like middle class people in Santa Clara County, you know, it's hard to, for instance, acquire uh you know, acquire land for a community land trust, for instance. But I'll say this, the banks certainly won't finance it because the banks are going to be scared. A public bank is much more likely to do it. But I think there's a lot of different kind of technical, you know, uh, I guess, you know, policies we can lean towards. But just, you know, big picture, I, I would be much, much uh, happier if people in all these positions of running the public banks or running the assessors of offices are curious in good faith and actually want to explore these things as opposed to like, I find it very dispiriting that Larry Stone like when faced with prop 15 which as you say has you know perhaps uh, no small amount of warts uh, but it is something to be looked at and implemented and just I think had a no we're fine here no you know like just just this blanket you know put your head in the sand 
uh, as opposed to, you know, like, what would it take to actually look at this? Well, I, well one kind of you know, small question, like, it's like you say there's the assessor, you know, appraisers and assessors uh, in the office at the moment doing this work, you know, mostly it seems like they're kind of checking sales as it happens. But if Prop 15 were to pass, the office, and, and it, you know, looks to be going back to the ballot in the future, the office would take on the work of assessing things regularly. Would this mean, like, if you were running the office and Prop 15 under its new guys, or let's say in the past you were there when it was pa- like last time, if it were to pass, would that mean that the office would be undergoing a massive hiring spree or to just to do the work? And I guess, is it empowered to do these things? It would, by necessity, have to engage in a massive hiring spree, as you put it. Yeah. Because work needs to be done. That said... If we had a modern database, it wouldn't be nearly as labor intensive to ramp ramp up to meet such a challenge head on. Because what you have is all of this data that's collected. One of the wonderful aspects of the assessor's office is that it sends out these surveys to all of these different uh, folks leasing property, and they inquire how much are you paying? Are you, are you paying the utilities or is the owner paying the utilities? It's these very basic surveys about how much people are actually paying in rent for property. This data all comes back to the assessor's office. As I was describing, you bring in all of this data from these surveys and then they're categorized by type. For example, one of the very interesting property types we have a lot of around here is server farms. And a server farm is valued very, very differently than a warehouse. And so having all the warehouses in one category, having all of the mom and pop store type uh, storefront rental units in another category, and divvying these up so that they're comparable, and then taking that data and using time value of money analysis to see what that property is worth. And so the data is there. And if we had a more modern, nimble database, being able to comb that database for the relevant data to reappraise each year and retrue ourselves by the latest data available, it, it wouldn't be that difficult in a logistical sense. You would need people who have experience doing this before or folks that had enough Similar, similar experience like CPAs, for example, bring them in, get them the sufficient training necessary, and they can be plugged right in to fill any gaps. So it's completely doable to manage such a system. It's just, you know, the political will. Sure. So it was right now, as far as the like the inputs, I guess the the office, I'm sure, gets like all all real estate sales. All, all real estate sales need to be reported, right, publicly at some point. So I, I believe that's input that, that you you get no matter what. And you say you, you supplement it through uh, surveys. Like how many surveys are, 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 are submitted now? And I guess would it need to be more if, it were, if we're in a post-Prop 15 world? There are thousands of surveys that they already do. I imagine that it would be just an annual survey that would go out to every single person leasing property of a commercial or industrial variety and 
bringing that back in and updating based on any fluctuations in the market, what those values are. One of the other things that is on the list of really essential, really valuable things that ought to get done is the ability to share this data statewide because there are some rare property types such as mines, open pit mines like the Kaiser cement mine, which I was relatively surprised to hear is uh, shutting down uh, Hmm. in West Santa Clara County. That is a very unusual property. And if a property like that sells or under a Prop 15 sort of scenario would get reappraised each year, there's not many giant open pit mines exchanging hands within this county. That sort of data would need a much broader statewide database in order to inform the appraisers to do an accurate job. And that is something that the state has recognized and has passed legislation to try and create. But thus far, it's kind of fumbled. And I think part of why it's fumbling is that generally, there's not a lot of really great spokespersons for data is amazing and essential. We totally should be doing this. Normally, it's a very quiet room with rather reserved people talking in hushed tones that put folks that aren't into that sort of thing to sleep. So yeah, I think the people who nerd out about that, I think probably, you know, are more likely to be working for a Silicon Valley firm than working for government, unfortunately. And I think we, we need a lot of that cross pollination. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, we've talked on the show before uh, about kind of the role of assessing, I think assessing over like a large amount of similar, you know, uh, properties I mean, I think as far as a, as a problem goes, that's that's I think pretty tractable, pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, but as you say, like unusual properties are more are, are, are certainly it's it's an interesting challenge politically and kind of just the the technical aspects. I know one thing, like Larry Stone, he came in to say that like when there was the land sales, like if correct me if I'm wrong, from San Jose to Google for like the Deridon properties, he had to say at the end, like this is a fair sales price or something because like he is, they want to make sure it's not like a sweetheart deal, but like, boy, like what do you, that's a, that's, that's like, that's a big question. You know, you have to, you have to, it's a big property. Like I think it's, it's not at all straightforward to, to get the, the zestimate or something of, of something that big would be straightforward if the assessor's office was presently fully modernized. Because the way that statistical analysis has just opened up new frontiers in the last 20 years with multiple regression tools, that it's like boggle the mind how you can isolate individual factors in complex systems using these analyses, you can end up figuring out is a land sale an appropriate value given a certain location, given a certain size of that land? These types of questions were just beyond the horizon 50 years ago. Sure. And now that this is coming to bear, it creates a lot of not only opportunities for guaranteeing much more accurate appraisals and assessments, such as with the Google properties, it also opens up other questions of means by which we might reform the assessment system. So the, these, this is the bleeding edge of appraisal and assessment. And currently with 
the present assessor and the ancient technology that he administers to, he pretty much just has to do a Kentucky windage measurement of what this value is and say, okay, well, we'll just commit it to the books. And if no one appeals it, it becomes permanent. And under Prop 13, it's future generations, under Prop 13, it's future generations issue, whether or not it was over or under assessed. Uh, maybe reflect for the listener that uh, Andrew uh, was was holding up a thumbs up. That's that's what you uh, missed there on the audio. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just I'm, I'm curious about just all the like. I mean, to get into technical stuff, what is the COBOL like software doing right now? Like, it, it seems like it's a, like it's like pulling up records. But like, I mean, what is it doing that you wouldn't get through a, through a SQL database? Like, is it doing computation? Is it doing analysis? It's very good at records management. Like. When I, was talk, when I was talking to the COBOL programmer who, who upgraded the assessor's database for Y2K compliance, I said, why, why is this technology even still around? And he said, you can do a lot of mass data polls really, really easily. For example, every year people get their ass- assessment notice that says your assessment has gone up by 2% or the rate of inflation due to Prop 13. Uh, everyone who's a property owner gets one of those. And that notification, all the data for that can be pulled really, really easily due to the COBOL architecture. This was a virtue back in 1979 when it was built. We have much better methodologies of doing this that allow us to create far more customizable data extractions. This is part of why I'm running is As a CPA, you're taught not just to keep the books, but you're taught to identify what's of value in those books that you need to report as a CFO or as a treasurer. And right now, most assessors, they're all about just keeping the books under the rules of of Prop 13 and other related assessment laws. And I look at this and I go, there's this other part that's missing this data reporting role of making sure that people know what's actionable intelligence that has been uncovered and administering to our work. This is, this is the missed opportunity that upgrading to a SQL database or something similar would allow us to create these, these reports that could just be generated with a push of a button for the city of San Jose, the city of Saratoga, the city of Gilroy, press a button. Here's a full report on all corporate uh, land landowners in residentially zoned districts in, in the city of Gilroy. Suddenly it's like, oh, we now know all the folks who outbid the millennials for their homes and then rented them back to them so that they would never be able to build equity. We have yeah, a list. Is, we should totally do is, something with this. This is just nuts. I mean, like just in general, like 484,000, like this is not big data. Like this is not as far as a technical challenge. This is trivial. Of course, the biggest issue of all, like making a new generation of, of, a, of a code base uh, you know, is always fraught. I mean, that's a, like a standard rule. It's like never rewrite your entire code base. But I think ultimately, sometimes it's necessary. And how do you do it right? I think it would be like really the best time to start is now. Build it in parallel. Make sure your data is at complete parity. And, you know, like it's the fact that they haven't been like 
slowly working towards migration. Um, I, I don't know because uh, it's you know they I, I think have, but they've failed. There's been three. <laughs> How major, they fail? There's been three major attempts since Larry Stone took office in January of 1995 because they recognized that it needed to be modernized. And even Sacramento has harped on this county for how far behind the times it is. And so each attempt, they tried to build it. And like I said, due to the way that the assessor's office is managed, it's not that the technology isn't capable of being built. It's that the way Larry Stone manages this office, there's not enough trust in his own employees in his leadership yeah. to really follow him there. So each of the prior three times it failed and they brought on for the third time, a major co consulting firm that guaranteed results and ultimately it failed. And the failure wasn't in the program, the actual artifact of technology they were building for it. The failure was in the leadership for this program. And right now, Sacramento is looking at giving between 40 and $50 million to Santa Clara County so that we can modernize this thing and get it done. But what I'm really kind of concerned about is Larry Stone talks about his fiscal conservatism till, you know, from sunup to sundown, lauding it. It's like, I've saved the county $23 million in all of the years I've worked here. And I look at that and I go, no, you've, you've strangled your office for 28 years and what would have been a $5 million upgrade back in 1995 is now going to be a $50 million upgrade in 2024. This is not fiscal conservatism. This is lunacy. Yeah. And so he's costing the county millions of dollars with his short-sightedness. And, and ultimately, it's the opportunity cost of just not not working towards a system of getting more tax receipts. So, I mean, like, this goes back to, like, I think we're kind of, like, you know, wrapping, getting close to wrapping up here. But just in general, you went from perhaps being a fringe candidate to being the main competitor. And in general, like, what would you say, like, as far as looking at, uh, you know, when the election is happening, what are your, what are your, you know, kind of chances as far as, like, what's the coalition you're pulling together? Like, who is, who is, who is Team Crockett? And, you know, how does this, how does this, you know, face off against the uh, Larry Stone machine? In question, the coalition that I've been seeing coming together, it's mostly the renter coalition, the folks 40 and under coalition, and the folks that just fundamentally still believe that good government is possible. It's like I, I looked into running for this office when I didn't have enough economic stability to do so, but I was looking into it earnestly back in 2018, because what really sits most difficultly in the pit of my stomach around Larry Stone is the way he's used cynicism to uphold his office. It's like he encourages people to boo him when he arrives at any sort of event, and he constantly aims to manage expectations down. One of the things that really is part of the way his inertia keeps him in office is he's been hiding this office in plain sight. He talks about the great customer service he gives, 
But he doesn't talk about the fact they don't do any outreach to the community to let them know the services they provide. This is, this is winning through cynicism. And there are people in this valley, I know them, many of them are on my campaign. They believe that good government is possible. And you have to start by being willing to experiment with doing something different than before, like voting for a new candidate for an office who has a vision of service. People are like, oh, I don't want the government to serve me. It's like, I have all these weird influences from the Reagan years on that. And I go, there's a lot of folks who were born after those years and they realize the missed opportunities that we have lying before us. And my job is to pick up all those missed opportunities and put them in place so that we can be inspired by our own genius again in this valley. And uh, if people want to check out all your stuff, uh, where, where can they head to, uh, I guess, to, to see your material, to see the campaign stuff uh, and everything else? Okay, it's electcrockett.com. That's C-R-O-C-K-E-T-T. Electcrockett.com. I'm on most forms of social media, either at electcrockett, all one word, or you can find us with hashtag elect Crockett again, all one word. So all of those, you can find us very quickly. YouTube is probably the best nexus to interface with the campaign because we are putting out daily new videos that not only talk about what I'm standing for, for this public office, but also we're putting out a series of public service announcements that talk about all the different pieces of this office. And when I'm elected, I'm looking forward to making these PSAs available in multiple different languages, because this is an amazingly diverse county, and everyone should have an equal opportunity to build wealth in this valley through the oldest method we have, home ownership. Well, I'd say especially if it's so broad that every single resident, you know, is sharing in the wealth of the community uh, would be the ultimate goal here. But uh, yeah, uh, in in general, yeah, I mean, I would say looking at uh, looking at the federal, you know, races, looking at the kind of stuff that no one can really you know, affect. Like that's that's for suckers. I'd say local races, and nothing's more exciting than the uh, local assessor's office. You know, so uh, I I think it's a uh, yeah. I think people if they haven't been paying attention. Uh, this this has been going down and running our feet. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your talk about this. My pleasure. And elect Crockett, remember, vote by June seventh, twenty twenty two, and the ballots will be all vote by mail. So you'll be getting those in the middle of May. So get get that ballot and remember, vote Crockett for Santa Clara County Assessor. Cool. cool, cool, cool. We have been talking to Andrew Crockett all about the Santa Clara County Assessor Race, the operations of the Assessor Office, and much more. You can find this program at the website seacat.org. <laughs>